going to begin a study of the book of Exodus. I gave you last week the options of Exodus and Isaiah. Uh, we'll do both, but I can only do one at a time. So uh, I'll start with Exodus. And uh, this, I think we'll see, is if we're going to do Isaiah or really any other book uh, of the prophets, uh, is going to be a significant uh, study. I think we're going to find that the Pentateuch uh, is to the Old Testament in many ways what the Gospel narratives are to the New Testament Scriptures. It gives us the historic foundation uh, of the Gospel. And certainly in the Pentateuch, we have not only the historical foundation upon which everything else uh, is going to develop in the Old Testament Scriptures and the New Testament, as I trust we're going to see. Uh, but we have here particularly uh, in uh, the book of Exodus and in Deuteronomy the theological foundation upon which the theology of the prophets are going to be uh, expressed in those future days. And there is going to be a developing uh, of that uh, theology, but certainly in the book of Exodus. Uh, I, I dare say there's hardly a doctrine uh, of the gospel that I can think of that in one way or another does not find some kind of statement uh, in the book of Exodus. It is indeed extremely, extremely important. And many of the themes that are going to uh, develop, I say, uh, in the later books and indeed in the New Testament uh, are based upon the theology of the Exodus. Uh, the prophets particularly will view the historic Exodus of Israel uh, from the land of Egypt as the great type, the great, uh, the great example uh, of indeed every other deliverance that God will ever effect for his people, whether it would be a future national deliverance uh, or indeed the uh, deliverance from sin. Uh, when we come to the New Testament Scriptures, uh, we're going to see the uh, references and the uh, themes of the Exodus throw, flowing very thick and very fast in much of the New Testament material. Uh, the term Exodus itself occurs in a most significant place in the New Testament. Uh, you remember in that what we refer to as the Transfiguration, uh, as the Lord Jesus is there seen in all of his uh, glory, witnessed by Peter, James, and John, there with Moses and Elijah. Uh, the book of Luke, in Luke's account uh, of that transfiguration, tells us that what they were discussing together concerned, and they used the Greek word there, exodus. Uh, they were discussing the exodus uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his coming death. The term exodus, simply a Greek word uh, that means the outway, the way out, right? the way out uh, in a very uh, historical sense, obviously. Uh, it designates the way out of Israel from that place of bondage, from the land of Egypt. Uh, but in its heightened theological sense, uh, it describes the way out uh, that God has provided in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the way out of our bondage of sin and bondage of uh, our guilt and whatever else. So it is a most important 
theological book. Uh, now, it's a long book. All right, it's a long book. And given my propensity to say a lot of stuff at times, uh, if we were to go through this book chapter by chapter, uh, I, I dare say that we are looking right now at the last ministry that Mike Barrett will ever have uh, to, this, uh, to this Sunday school. Uh, it, it, it'd be a lifetime, I, I dare say, and I don't know how long my life is, but I'm sure if I were to deal with this chapter by chapter and paragraph by paragraph and verse by verse, that I have now defined my life's ministry. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure that I want to do that. Uh, so what I intend to do for you uh, is at least to develop and to identify some of the great, uh, the great themes uh, of this book. I'll suggest the organization that I'm going to use here in just a moment. Uh, identifying some of the great theological themes uh, of the book, uh, and we'll illustrate it from the various sections and various statements that are made. Uh, and, and I trust that we can get uh, a good idea so that when you come in your own personal study to the book of Exodus and you read, you know what you're looking for, that you know the theme uh, and can identify at least the major, uh, the major message. And there are great significant messages uh, in this book of Exodus. Now, it is the second book that Moses, uh, that Moses wrote. You understand that the first five books uh, of the Old Testament, we call these the Pentateuch, the uh, the Torah, the law, if you will, not law in the sense of legislation, but it is that general term uh, for special revelation in the Old Testament. But as we look at the, the threefold division uh, of the Old Testament scriptures in the Jewish canon, the Old Testament canon, and we find references to this in the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament was designated in three principal divisions, the law, the prophets, uh, and the writings or the psalms, uh, just as we talk about the Gospels and the Epistles. All right? We often refer to the New Testament in those terms. Uh, here are the Gospels, here are the Epistles. Uh, well, same basic notion here. Well, the law refers to the Pentateuch, uh, the five books of Moses. All of these were written uh, within a period of 40 years. Uh, as conservatives, and that's what we are here uh, in this regard, uh, we date all of the writings of Moses uh, from that time period uh, at the Exodus until the death of Moses. Uh, the last book that he wrote, obviously, was Deuteronomy. That was on the very eve, as it were, of his death. That was his last sermon uh, to the people before he died and before the reins of leadership were passed on to Joshua to bring the people into the next stage. Uh, of actually possessing uh, that land of promise. Uh, so we date, uh, we date that to uh, around 1405, 1406, plus or minus a couple of years. I'm not going to worry about that. Uh, but there at the very end of the 15th century B.C. Uh, he began writing then uh, in the middle of the 15th century. Uh, we date uh, the Exodus, and I will perhaps speak of this in uh, some general terms, uh, we date the Exodus at uh, about 1445 or 1446 B.C. Again, plus or minus a couple of years, I'm not going to get excited. Uh, but given the biblical evidence, all right, given the biblical evidence of the time when this Exodus took place, uh, 
uh, it is imperative that we date this book, uh, this whole ministry of Moses, uh, into the uh, middle of the 15th century. Let me just go ahead and give you the biblical foundation for that statement, one of the biblical foundations. Uh, turn to 1 Kings. Look at 1 Kings, chapter 6. 1 Kings, chapter 6. We're now in the time of Solomon. And verse 1 says, And it came to pass in the 480th year, after the children of Israel were come up out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now this is a most important verse. I grant you here, I, I think I'd be safe to assume that that is no one here's life verse. Uh, but it is nonetheless uh, a very significant statement for us. Dating uh, the historical events that are here taking place, the foundation of which is this Exodus event. Now, I'm not going to go into the establishing and how we establish the chronology uh, of the ancient Near East at this time. Uh, but we throw these dates around. I'm saying here the middle of the 15th century. I'm going to date Solomon here to the 10th century. And we, we date this prophet to uh, 701 or what have you. And we give very precise dates. Now, it's a question, where do those dates come from? Obviously, things that we have from the ancient Near East uh, and from the biblical evidence were not dated in B.C. terms. All right? they, they had no way of knowing that. Uh, but there are ways... All right, there are ways from various sources, both written and unwritten, uh, whereby we establish a chronology. I'm not going to go into all of that detail. All right, that's beyond the scope of what I want to say uh, right now, except to say to you that when I use these days, there is credible uh, foundations for making those statements. We're not just pulling these out of uh, the top of your Schofield reference Bible. All right, these dates are... Uh, they are provable, they are at least arguable uh, in many ways. All right, now, having said that, uh, there is little dispute, all right, there is little dispute, virtually no dispute, uh, whether we are conservatives or liberals, and very often there will be a significant difference of opinion between what we identify as conservative, uh, conservative Old Testament uh, scholarship and liberal Old Testament scholarship very often significant differences in when something is dated. Uh, and that has implications going in many, many directions. But as far as the time of Solomon is concerned, there is virtually no dispute. Uh, there is no dispute that Solomon dates here to the middle of the 10th century. Uh, and virtually all are going to agree uh, that this reference to the... Uh, uh, what is it, the fourth year of Solomon's reign, uh, is about 966 B.C. Now, I'm not going to quibble again, plus or minus five years. If you want to put this at 960, uh, I'm not going to get upset. If you want to put this at 970, I'm not going to get particularly upset. Uh, but generally, uh, in the mid-960s, uh, about 966 for the time of Solomon's fourth year and the building of the house, the temple of the Lord in the following chapters then describe uh, the building of the temple leading then to that statement of dedication uh, of the temple. But 
Uh, what appears to be here a very passing remark then, uh, in establishing the date of this says that Solomon was doing this 480 years after the Exodus. Now, I'm not a great mathematician, uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm good enough here to know that if I add 480 years uh, to 966, it takes me back to the middle of the 15th century. Uh, and it's going to put us at about 1446, 1445, again, depending upon uh, what that precise date is. Now, that is very strong and very explicit biblical evidence uh, concerning the dating and when these events took place. Uh, many of the critics are going to date this Exodus event in the 13th century, uh, around 1290 or so. Well, uh, you say, what's the big deal? Well, it's an extremely big deal when you look at all of the biblical evidence that has to go into that particular period. Uh, and it denies, then, if I take that 13th century date uh, of the Exodus, uh, as I look at some of these express and explicit statements concerning what God is making, uh, concerning the history, uh, it, it, it violates uh, and requires some kind of, at very best, strange hermeneutic, if not outright uh, ignoring of what the biblical evidence seems to be. Uh, this that I'm reading in 1 Kings is a historic context. Uh, I have really no hermeneutical justification uh, for interpreting that 480 years symbolically of you know, a couple of family generations or uh, anything else, uh, which you would have to do if you uh, eliminated that simple number. So I'm taking that very seriously. All right, when I say that Moses began writing in the middle of the 15th century, uh, I am doing that on the basis, uh, really, of 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. There is another significant text in Judges chapter 11. Uh, you may want to turn there. I know this is not the part of Exodus that's particularly exciting for you, but we'll get this over with, and you say it can't get any worse, so I'll come next week. All right, in Judges chapter 11, uh, we have this episode where Jephthah, the judge Jephthah, uh, in obeying the call of God to deliver the people uh, from the oppression of the Ammonites, uh, speaks to the Ammonites. All right, he speaks to the Ammonites here in Judges uh, 11 uh, concerning uh, what they're all up and bothered about. Why are they seeking to take some of this land away? And the Ammonites were claiming that, hey, this is our land. Uh, Israel has taken our land and it's ours and now we want some of it back. And Jephthah uh, here in, I say, delivering the people from the Ammonites says these words to the Ammonites that, um, again, in passing are significant for us. I'm looking at verse 26, Judges 11, 26. Uh, and I say he's speaking here to um, the Ammonites. Why don't you just be satisfied with what your God, Chemosh, has given you back in verse 24. Then verse 26, While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns, and Aurora and all her towns, and her towns, and in all the cities that be along the coasts of the Arnon, 300 years. Now, if you know your Bible geography, we're here in what we call that Transjordan uh, region on the east uh, side of the Jordan, a uh, territory that was 
at one time Moab and indeed did belong to the Ammonites, uh, but uh, Israel possessed it. Israel did possess it. But notice the statement that, uh, that Jephthah makes. We've been here for 300 years. All right? We have been living in these towns for 300 years. Why now, after 300 years, are you all of a sudden saying this land is our land? We've been here. Why did you not do something 300 years ago as it were? Well, you know, they did. They put up a little fight. But, uh, at the same time, this, this is his argument. We've been here for 300 years. Now, when was, if, we can, uh, if we can define the date of Judges here and the time of Jephthah and add 300 years to that, then that's going to be significant. In the dating of the Exodus, the dating of the Exodus and the dating of the conquest are obviously inseparably linked uh, together. All right, now we date the time of Judges, and again, I'm not going to uh, go into all of the specific arguments here, uh, but we are going to date uh, Jephthah to around 1100. All right, we date Jephthah to around 1100. All right, and Jephthah, who is ministering here at about 1100 B.C., says, hey, we've been here for 300 years. You add 300 to 1100, you get 1400, the very time when I expect the conquest uh, to be taking place. So the evidence of Judges corresponds very nicely to the evidence of First uh, Kings. First uh, Kings says that the Exodus took place 480 years prior to uh, the sixth year of Solomon, middle of the 15th century. Uh, Jephthah says the conquest began, as it were, and this was among the first places of the conquest, began then around 1400. Well, that's what we expect. All right? That's what we expect. So all I'm saying is the biblical evidence here uh, puts this at the very uh, beginning then, the writing uh, of the Pentateuch uh, within this period and framework of the life and the ministry of Moses. This is the first time all right, this is the first time we're talking in the middle of the 15th century. For the first time in the history of the world, and this needs to sink into us, for the first time in the history of the world, we have God inscripturating uh, His truth. For the first time in the history of the world, we have special revelation being written down uh, for, man to, uh, for man to read, for the easy dissemination, uh, and the easy education, if you will, of the Word of God uh, to the people uh, of of God, uh, and this is one of the great one of the great privileges uh, that God had given to the nation of Israel uh, that uh, it would be through them that the law and the covenants, uh, the adoption, uh, all of that was given to them and through them, and ultimately. Uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've made reference, I know, to you before, to Romans chapter 9 and verse 5, one of the great uh, Christological passages that established the deity of the Lord Jesus. But verse 4 begins to give us some of the great benefits that God had for the people of Israel, not the least of which was the giving of the law, uh, not the least of which was the covenants and the recording of those covenants, and ultimately of the fathers concerning whom Christ came according to the flesh. He was God over all. Amen. Uh, and great benefits as they became the, uh, I, I, I use this word here, not in the New Age sense, all right, but they became the channel through which God revealed and communicated uh, His special word. Now, that was remarkable. That was remarkable. For the first time in the history of the world, uh, we have special revelation being written down 
to, to see the providence of God uh, in this whole operation is, is just uh, is just mind-boggling. I think. Uh, now you understand, you understand that this is not the beginning of special revelation. We've talked about that before. Special revelation began in the garden. All right. Special revelation began in the garden. This is the communication of God's salvific word to man. Uh, that began in the garden. Uh, and God was revealing himself, uh, as it were, indiscriminately, if I can use that word. God was revealing himself indiscriminately uh, to men in various places, not limited to any ethnic group, not limited to any particular people or geographic location. Uh, God was revealing himself, uh, if you will, universally and indiscriminately. But uh, we know what happened. There was Babel, right? In Genesis chapter 11, we have the Babel incident and God scatters. Uh, God scatters humanity. Uh, and now it is through Abraham and the line that was going to be formed uh, in the providence of God through Abraham now that we have ultimately the uh, the seed here, the nation of Israel, uh, through which God now is going to give and preserve that revelation that had already uh, been given. For the first time, I say, it was written down by Moses. At the very time, and again, this is, I, I, this is why this could get really out of hand. I have, so far, I've not said one thing that I was planning on saying uh, today. Uh, but, but, but this is, this is why uh, even the development of the alphabet uh, was so remarkably significant. The history of writing. Writing begins. Uh, we have the beginning of writing as early as 3000. Uh, we have written documents uh, in logographic form, in syllabic form ultimately. Uh, but the alphabet was developed. Uh, the alphabet was developed in the uh, at perhaps as early as the 16th century, 15th century, first part of the 15th century, but 16th century, we have the development of the alphabet. Uh, that, that in the providence of God was most remarkable. Uh, in a logographic system uh, of writing that you have in the Sumerians, if you remember from your history of civilization, reading about the Sumerians and their logographic, uh, logographic writings, uh, literally thousands of signs were necessary. Uh, you have to have a sign virtually for every word that you know. Uh, and, and then comes Akkadian with a syllabic style of writing uh, where each sign represented a syllable. But think of how many syllable combinations uh, there are. This consonant, that vowel, that vowel, that consonant, any number. And in, in Akkadian, there were uh, upwards of five, six hundred specific signs that were required to represent all of those syllables. Well, literacy... All right. You understand that literacy then in that ancient world was extremely, extremely rare. Uh, it, it was not that which was uh, feasible for the uh, for the mass of population. Literacy was limited just to a uh, very elite, very erudite uh, group of people. They educated the scribes and what have you. Uh, but literacy, I say, extremely, extremely limited. Uh, simply because of the complexity of the language. But with the development of the alphabet, you see, now all of those signs, every alphabetic system is going to have somewhere between 22 and 20, uh, 28, some maybe 30 signs. But what a reduction. All right? What a reduction of signs that were required now to communicate that 
uh, that information from literally thousands of signs now to just 20 uh, or, or 30 signs to represent in writing now that particular language. And with the development of the alphabet, my point is that literacy and the ability of literacy, uh, it, it, just, it just broke loose. And now reading was not, uh, it was not just the, uh, the, 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 the phenomenon of the elite uh, specially educated and specially uh, uh, programmed class of people. No, literacy now began to spread. Now, I say in Hebrew is an alphabetic language. Now, my point is, in the providence of God, at the very time when God had determined to start inscripturating His Word was now a vehicle by which that Word could be communicated for immediate dissemination. Uh, of that word. Hebrew is an alphabetic language. Uh, we don't have any scripture written in Sumerian logograms. We don't have any scripture in Akkadian syllabic uh, style. No, that was very limited, uncheckable as it were, uh, and it put all the authority in that priestly, uh, in that priestly sect, in that priestly organization, but not with the Word of God. The Word of God was given in a means that was easily uh, easily disseminated uh, among the people uh, and literacy uh, even in that ancient world literacy among the Hebrews uh, was uh, indeed widespread it's not without significance and I, it's important to put this stuff then I'm saying in the proper uh, historical context not only from the standpoint of the message but what God was doing and why God was doing and why he was doing it this way at this particular time uh, and here Moses the first then, uh, where we have the word of God actually being written down and the message then, uh, the message that he has was good uh, not only for those people to whom he was particularly ministering, uh, but it establishes the link of God's people uh, at this time with all the way back to the garden, uh, a single people of God. And we are going to see the implications of that. Uh, that the gospel that we are going to see in the book of Exodus uh, is exactly the same gospel that you and I uh, are placing our eternal destinies upon. Uh, beautiful pictures here. Same gospel, a different administration. We've talked about that. Uh, a different administration of that gospel. A different way of preaching that gospel, if you will. But the same gospel. Uh, and it's imperative then for us uh, to understand that. Now, you can't understand Exodus apart from Genesis. All right? You can't understand Exodus apart from Genesis. And here's, what, here's where a lot of people go wrong. See? Uh, you look at Exodus, and we're going to be looking here at this complex tabernacle system. We're going to be looking at these complex sacrifices that God had, uh, was establishing for these people. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't interpret all of that apart from Genesis. Remember, Genesis was written at the same time and given to the same people that Exodus was given to. I can't interpret then, I cannot interpret what God is teaching these people through the tabernacle, uh, through the sacrifices. I can't interpret that apart from what he had to the same people taught them concerning Abraham being justified by faith. You see, uh, That it's not an animal, it's not this, it's, it's, it's by faith in this coming seed uh, that was established for us in Genesis 3.15. Uh, it is extremely, extremely important. All right, now all of that is uh, in, in general background. Now, I'll try as we go through to keep this within that context 
and use genesis, if you will, I, I hate to put it this way, but understand what I'm saying, will use genitive as the corrective uh, to our misunderstandings of the book of Exodus. It was a corrective for ancient Israel every time that they had to, any time that they thought that salvation was in a goat, uh, there was Genesis staring in them in the face that no, it's in the seed of the woman that's going to come. Uh, it's in the seed of Abraham that's going to come. Uh, it, it's in, you see, uh, here, here was that corrective to keep them focused upon the personal Redeemer, the personal Messiah uh, that uh, God had promised from the very beginning. Uh, I get this I get this question asked me all the time, right? Uh, how, how could they see that? How, did, how could Israel really see and, and have faith in a coming Messiah? They, they had faith in goats and they had faith in bulls. And, and the problem with that question, you know, one of the a aspects of ignorance in that question uh, is, is that you assume that those people were interpreting and reading the Bible the same way you do, uh, in isolation, without putting in the context and believing what God had already revealed, you see. Uh, it's not what God expects. God expected them, and get this in your head, God expects us uh, to interpret the Scripture in the light of the Scripture and to use what He had already revealed as the foundation for what He is revealing at any particular point. Uh, and He never contradicts Himself, you see. Never contradicts himself. So if I come to these animal sacrifices and remember that God has already said that the reverser of the curse is going to be the seed of the woman, I have no warrant except out of utter and total disbelief and disregard to say, ah, you see, God's changing in mind. Now he's going to try a goat for a while. That is utter and total folly. You see, It is Genesis that gives us the historic theological foundation for studying Exodus. And on and on it goes. This is a good book. This is a good book. I suppose if this were the last ministry in my life, I wouldn't be particularly unhappy. Uh, it is a very rich theological book. And if we can isolate then, while not dealing with every single statement, uh, if I can draw your attention to some of these great theological themes uh, in the book, uh, then I think it will open up that message uh, for you. All right, now very simply, I'll, I'll state a theme of the book. I'll state a theme of the book. Uh, and I'll be working at this backwards for you, right? I, we don't come to a book and put a theme on it and then look for that theme uh, as we read. We do our reading, we do our studying, and then we put the theme on it. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to start backwards for you, right? I'm going to give you what the theme is, and then I'll show you how it uh, is developed uh, in the course of the book. Now, very simply, the theme is deliverance and worship. All right? If I had to summarize it in two, uh, in two basic uh, words, it's deliverance. Uh, and worship, but uh, let me give a little more precise statement of theme and then I'll begin to develop this for you. All right, here's how I would state the theme. Because of his covenant promise, because of his covenant promise, God has brought out Israel from bondage in order that they might serve him. All right, because of his covenant promise, God has brought out Israel from the place of bondage in order that they might serve him. So, deliverance and service. Deliverance and worship. The first part of the book, I think very clearly, we'll see the theme of deliverance. Uh, here's the great story of the plagues and the great story of the Passover, the great story of the Exodus, the great story of that deliverance through the Red Sea. The first part of the book uh, draws our attention particularly to that theme of deliverance. We come to the latter part of the book, 
Uh, and now we see all the regulations concerning the tabernacle uh, and instructions concerning the garb of the priest and the dedication of the priest. And Well, there's the theme of service, the theme of worship. All right? So even the very obvious structure of the book uh, highlights these two uh, very simple ideas. God delivers the people from the place of bondage and he brings them into the place then of service and worship unto him. And one of the interesting things that we're going to see is that the same terms, all right, the same terms that describe Israel's service and Israel's bondage and slavery, if you will, uh, in the place of Egypt, uh, that same word is going to describe their service uh, under the Lord. All right, you were serving the Egyptians. Now you're going to serve the Lord. Exactly the same terminology. Uh, the only difference is the master. You see, the master is different. Uh, in Egypt, the master uh, was uh, harsh, obviously, uh, but in deliverance, the master is kind and he is benevolent and he indeed is their savior. So about 35 times, about 35 times in this book, reference is going to be made to this theme of deliverance. Uh, the word to go out or to bring out, God brought these people out. That particular word uh, occurs uh, 26 times. And then there's another word that means literally to come up uh, occurs uh, about nine or ten more times, giving us, I think, 35, 36 references uh, in the book to their deliverance from this land of bondage. All right, now, as I anticipate uh, developing this theme, there are basically four uh, four topics, four principal uh, uh, themes, if not themes, at least breakdowns, questions, statements that I want to answer for us. Uh, the first thing, and this is what we'll start today in the last five minutes, is uh, why God delivered. Why did God deliver these people? That's the first thing that we'll consider in our study. The second thing is how did God deliver? How did he deliver these people? Then, uh, third question, or third statement, whom did God deliver? Who are these people? How did God view these people? What descriptions of the people of God do we have in this book? And the final statement, then, where uh, did God deliver them? So I think if I can deal with those four very broad statements, why God delivered them, how God delivered them, who God delivered, whom God delivered, and where God delivered. Uh, that will give us a pretty thorough synopsis, at least, uh, of the main messages of this book. All right, so let's begin looking then at the first question here, the first uh, idea as why God delivered uh, these people. Let me go ahead and mark for you uh, chapter 6. I won't have too much time to actually get started today, but let me call your attention to chapter 6. And we'll use this as our theme passage. Exodus chapter 6, uh, verses 6 to 8. Let's mark this as our theme passage. This is here still in God's call to Moses, instructing him as to what his ministry is going to be in delivering these people from bondage. Uh, verse 6, Wherefore, 
Say unto the children of Israel. Now, I want you to note here before I even go any further. How this section begins. I am the Lord. See that statement? I am the Lord. Now, I'm going to be reading down to verse 8. Notice how verse 8 ends. I am the Lord. I am the Lord begins this statement. I am the Lord ends this statement. So we have, if I can speak very crassly here, uh, we have a Jehovah sandwich. Right? Uh, here is a list of statements that are sandwiched in to this great declaration. I am Jehovah. Notice how the word Lord is spelled. It's all capitals. This is Jehovah. This is that covenant God. This is that God, uh, the name of God that is so inseparably linked to His covenant promises and to His covenant dealings and to His saving dealings uh, with His people. Uh, we will certainly pay attention in our study of Exodus to these divine names and the divine titles. Never, never do they occur accidentally. So here is the Lord, Jehovah. Uh, that reveals himself in grace, that reveals himself in covenant promise to these people. All right, so between then those two statements, for those of you that like technical terms rather than lunchroom terms, we call this inclusio. All right, inclusio. Uh, but sandwich is good enough. Or a parenthesis, a verbal parenthesis. I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord. Whatever makes sense. So if you think you're erudite, the word is inclusio. Uh, the next notch is parentheses, And then for the most of us, it's just a Jehovah sandwich. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people. And I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for an heritage. I am the Lord. I submit to you in those uh, three verses we have virtually uh, every theme that is going to be developed for us in the book of Exodus. All right, here is God's own summary, God's own synopsis paragraph uh, of what this revelation to Moses uh, is going to be. You see the great emphasis there upon the deliverance. The deliverance. I am going to bring you into this land. I'm going to be your God. Uh, you're going to know me. That's covenant jargon. All right, that is covenant terminology. Uh, that uh, we will highlight as we make our way through this book. So let's mark Exodus 6, verses 6 to 8, as the theme verses uh, that describe for us what's going to happen uh, in this book. All right, so as we come then to look at this first issue, why did God deliver these people? I think I can summarize this in two broad statements, and then I'll develop this for you next week. Uh, but broadly, uh, I can say to you, uh, on the basis here of the biblical evidence, that God delivered these people, uh, number one, because of the promise that he made 
to the patriarchs, the promise that he made to the patriarchs, and number two, because his concern for these people. The promise that he made to the patriarchs and the compassion that he had on the people. And I think both of those ideas are expressed for us nicely uh, at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, the last, uh, last three verses. And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of their bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel. And God had respect unto them. Alright, there are the two principal reasons why God delivered these people. The promise, the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembered that covenant. Not that God had forgotten about it. How can God forget that which He has entered into with His people? But the time had come, and this is the idea here of the word remembering. The time had come for God now to put into operation, to start actively operating, uh, if you will, in terms of that covenant. Not that He had forgotten, as we'll see in just a moment. And then because of the concern that he had for these people. Covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to close my Bible. Our time is gone. But I just want you to think. I want you to think of what has happened between Genesis and Exodus. Genesis focuses our attention upon that great promise given to Abraham that there was going to be a seed There was going to be a people that were more numerous than the stars of the heaven and the sand of the sea. A great seed. A great nation. Great nations, the Lord said, are going to come out of Abraham. By the time we end Genesis, by the time we end Genesis, uh, it, it doesn't look too promising. Here is this family of Abraham consisting now of uh we're told 70 souls, 70 souls uh, that were now the descendants of Abraham that make their way down into Egypt. And they're there, 70 souls. By the time, when you close your devotions one day in Genesis, uh, you, you have 70 pitiful souls uh, there in Egypt. And you open your Bible the next day and start reading in Exodus. And you have now a people that was so numerous, a people that was so uh, in bondage now, certainly, but nonetheless so numerous that whoever it was, and we'll have to talk about this, that was the authority in Egypt, uh, put them in bondage and put them in slavery in order to control them and to subdue them. They had grown into a great nation. Now, you understand then that it wasn't just uh, a, a week past Uh, between Genesis and Exodus. I don't know how long passed before Moses wrote the thing. They wrote at the same time. But historically, understand this please, that historically you have as much time between Genesis and Exodus as between Malachi and Matthew. You've got 400 odd years. 
historically, between the end of Genesis 